Um, my name is Michelle Fritz, and I've been worshiping at the well for about a little over a year now at the Fig Garden campus. And they asked me to do this breakout session because, hi, welcome. Hi, do you guys want to take a packet? That's okay. Here you go. We're just getting started, so yeah. Um, because I have, um, I've been privileged to spend extensive time overseas. Um, I was a missionary with YWAM for a few years, and so I was based in Australia, and then I took short-term outreach teams in and out of Africa for three years. And when I came back to the States, I just assumed that I would end up going back overseas again, but um, I, I didn't. But um, So I have a degree in intercultural studies. I went to school for that. And uh, during that time, I just felt like God was showing me that the nations of the earth are in the cities of America. And we look around us, and we pretty much have someone representing every nation or people group right here in our own backyard. So there's plenty of cross-cultural ministry to do here. Um, for sure, people are called overseas, um, but it's, it's important to have people here also ministering cross-culturally. So what I want to do is just get our cultural juices flowing right now. So I want you to turn to the person next to you and just share with them what ethnic national, racial, or people group you or your family identify with. So an example would be I, uh, my mom is Italian and my dad is German, but since I was raised by my mom, I know little of my German roots. I identify mostly with my Italian or specifically Sicilian roots, and I'm the third generation to be born here in America on that side. So go ahead and share with your neighbor something similar to that, and then I'm going to call you guys back together. So. Okay, guys. We'll do, I'll just call us back together really quick. So hopefully, as you were sharing with each other um, what your family is, whether or not you're German, Italian, Swedish, whatever you are, um, maybe some memories came to mind, some thoughts of traditions that you would share during the holidays, family gatherings, whether or not it's a really loud gathering, um, lots of hand gestures, maybe smells came to you because of the different foods that you ate, maybe some thoughts of language and stuff. So I just want to kind of get our cultural juices flowing there. And um, I want to lead in with a definition of culture. And you guys have that on the outline that I gave to you. And there are a lot of definitions out there, but I chose the one that I felt was the most holistic or all-encompassing. And this is written by Paul Hebert. He's an anthropological missionary. Um, he says that culture is a more or less integrated system of beliefs, feelings, and values, and their associated symbols, patterns of behavior, and products shared by a group of people. I know that's kind of a mouthful, so what I want to do right now is kind of break that down and look at um, what some of those different systems are and their associated patterns. So um, let's look at, I think, the layers of culture is right there on your first page. I have different notes, so... Um, let's take a look at some of the different layers of culture. And what I want you to do is at the tip of the iceberg, write in observable. This is the observable layer of culture. Excuse my handwriting ahead of time. <laughs> okay, and these are the things that we can kind of understand with our five senses. Um, our sight, our smell, our hearing, our taste. So go ahead, and I want you guys to kind of participate, because I don't want to be a talking head the whole time. And tell me, what are some of the things on the observable layer of culture that you might know? Some, who's been overseas here? Or, one, two, three. Okay, a lot of you have. You've all probably interacted with another culture. Maybe you mentor someone in the Susan B. Anthony neighborhood who's Hmong or Hispanic. I'm sure you've interacted with another culture. So what are the things that you observe in their homes or when you're overseas? Exactly. 
Yeah, colors. What else is on the observable layer? Clothing. Clothing, absolutely, yeah. How do they dress? Language. Language, yeah, that's probably one of the most obvious ones. Yep, language, clothing, colors. Food, yeah, taste, different tastes. Um, one of my roommates is, was, was, an old roommate was Mong, and she used to cook. And I'd come into the house and knew right away that she had been cooking. And it was difficult for me because I didn't necessarily appreciate all the smells. <laughs> but yeah, food, definitely. So smells are a part of that, yeah. What else do we know on the observable layer of culture? Traditions, yes. Yep, that's on my notes too. Traditions, yeah. Yeah. Dances, maybe. Um, music that you hear. Yeah. We can also observe different roles that people play. As we're watching kind of the family interactions, you can kind of observe the roles that everyone has in the family. So that's the observable layer of culture. Underneath that, go ahead and write institutions. Institutions help or undergird the observable layer. So go ahead and, and give me an example of um, an institution. Yes, good. Education, yeah. Is it important in a certain culture? Um, maybe you're in an agrarian culture, and so your livelihood comes from a farm. So to send a child to school at five years of age isn't as important as sending them to start working on the farm, because that's the livelihood, yeah. So education, what other institutions do we have? Government, Government yep. And that is um, a big one that encompasses a whole lot of things. Um, the law, the legal system. How is justice brought about in a particular culture? Um, do you cane someone for making a mistake? Do they have the right to a fair and speedy trial? Do they have the right to remain silent? Um, yeah, the legal system. <coughs> Financial, good, yeah. 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 What about marriage? This is one of my favorite ones to talk about. <laughs> Do you have love matches, or is marriage arranged for you in a particular culture? Even here in America, the Hmong culture still arranges marriages. So just because you've come to America doesn't necessarily mean you participate in the cultural rules here. So how old is it appropriate to get married? There's something in the newspaper last week talking about a little girl and little boy who were married to settle a dispute in India. She was five and he was eight. Yeah, yeah, and the Indian government is taking care of that right now. It's not necessarily legal, but culturally, that was an appropriate thing to do to settle a, a family dispute. So polygamy, can you have more than one wife in a particular culture? So kind of keep in mind as we're going through some of these things, is this right, is this wrong, or is it just different? I'm not going to answer that question for you. It's kind of important to maybe stand in the tension. And in no way am I trying to promote any sort of relativism, let me tell you that right now. There are some things that are absolutely wrong um, about particular practices in a culture. But a lot of times, things are just different, and we have to live in the tension of the differences. So um, the healthcare system, is it privatized? Um, is it socialized? 
And then what? And a major institution. Yes, religion. Yeah, exactly. Are you an Islamic culture? Um, Christian, animistic, atheistic. So what kind of religion? Yeah. And then underneath all that, you guys probably have four layers, and the only reason that you do is because I didn't know how to fix the little clip art. <laughs> There's only three, so ignore the bottom layer. But underneath that, what undergirds all of this is your values. So put values. This is our worldview assumptions, and it's a little bit harder to observe and understand because these are the things that are internalized. Um, these, this is more our sense of what's right and our sense of what's wrong, um, how we make judgments about particular things. And I think I wrote down there on your outline that the iceberg concept shows that what lies at the bottom influences what we observe on the surface. Our values and our worldview, our worldview drive our behaviors and influence our feelings and expectations of how things should be and our effective response to others' behavior and way of doing things. We judge based on our worldviews. So it's important to, to keep that in mind. I want to kind of dovetail off of values right now. And if you guys turn your page, um, we're going to take a look at some basic values. This is um, the basic values model, and it was written by Marvin Mayers and Sherwood Lingenfelter. They're both anthropological missionaries. And I was actually privileged to study under Sherwood at Biola. So um, I left room for you guys to just take notes as you want to. Um, there are two things that I want to keep in mind as we go over these differences in values. The first is that some of this is very personality-driven. Um, we might live in a culture, for example, that's very time-oriented, but by nature of how God wired us and created us, we're more of an event-oriented person. So we might feel out of place in our own culture sometimes, but then we go into like an African culture, for example, and we feel like, well, God, why wasn't I born here? I fit here so much better than I do in America. So just keep that in mind. Some of it's personality-driven. And the other thing to keep in mind is what I just said. Um, is one orientation more right than another? Is one just plain wrong? Or are they just differing values? So um, let's take a look at the time orientation there. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I have said to someone, I'm going to meet you, so, you know, at such and such a place at 10 o'clock, I start looking at my watch five minutes before 10. At that point, I'm like, they're already late. And it's not even 10 o'clock yet, but I start to get antsy at that point. So um, we have different ideas of time than other cultures do. Um, go ahead and fill in the blank here. We have places to go and people to see. Yeah. America is an example of very time-oriented culture. Um, we have concern for punctuality and the amount of time that we expend on things. Um, we carefully allocate our time to um, achieve the maximum within set limits. And we're very tightly scheduled, and we have goal-oriented activities. Um, that's an example of a time-oriented culture. On the other end of the pendulum, there's the event-oriented culture. Um, from having spent time in Australia and specifically doing some ministry with the Australian Aboriginals. That's a very much event-oriented culture. Um, there's a concern for the details of the event, regardless of the time that's expended on it. Um, they exhaustively consider a problem until it's resolved, and there's more of a let-come-what-may attitude that's not tied to any precise schedule. 
So that's the difference between time and event orientation. So, and that could be very, very frustrating when you're going into an event-oriented culture. We were told to go to an Aboriginal church and that we were going to start at 7, and we were in charge of preaching, we were going to be in charge of the drama, the worship, the whole service. So, you know, we had been working on a painting project earlier that day. I made sure we were finished on time so that we could get to the church service on time. We were there, we were ready to go. 7 o'clock didn't start till 9.30. I was so ticked off, you guys. That was just the conflicting value there. So that's something to just kind of keep in mind. It wasn't right or wrong. It was just different, and I had to adjust to that. My team had to adjust to that. So um, Underneath that, we have dichotomistic thinking and holistic thinking. I want to give you guys room, too, as I'm talking, to go ahead and share some maybe experiences or stories that you have that might illustrate some of these differences in values, um, because I'm sure most of you raised your hand and said that you've done some cross-cultural ministry, so I'm sure you have stories to share, too. But if something just flashes through your head, go ahead and raise your hand. I'd love for you to share it. Um, Islamic culture, very dichotomistic in their thinking. Judgments are black and white. Um, there's a sense of right and wrong. Uh, specific criteria is uniformly applied in evaluating someone. So um, we just had a missions night for Holly Cannon the other night, and one of the guys was sharing on, um, on the Muslim culture and was just saying that, you know, here we don't judge a book by its cover, but there you judge a book by its cover. So uniformly applied in evaluating others. And your security comes from fitting into a particular role or category in society. In the Islamic culture, women know their place. They know what they can and they can't do. They walk behind the man. They're never seen in public without the husband. So men know their role and their place in society. And the security comes from that. Children know what's going to be expected of them also. But then you've got holistic thinking. And I was trying to think of a culture for that, but I think women in general, just as a gender, particularly American women, are more holistic in their thinking. Um, judgments are open-ended. There's room for gray areas. The whole person and all the circumstances are taken into consideration when making a judgment on a person. Um, and you're insecure if you're confined to a particular role or category in society. Uh, women wear many different hats in this culture. We're wives, we're mothers, we're friends, we're students, we're employees, maybe employers. So we don't like being confined to that one role that's put upon us. So, And... Um, you know, there's just room for a bigger picture, other options. Plan A doesn't work. Plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E, it's exhausted. So that's an example of holistic thinking. Um, does anyone have any thoughts or questions yet? Okay, great. Let's just keep going then. Then there's the crisis-oriented culture. Um, I think what's happening in the current American economy is indicative that America is a very crisis-oriented culture. Uh, we, we anticipate the crisis. Um, we emphasize planning in the middle of that crisis. Uh, we seek quick resolutions to avoid any sort of ambiguity. And we, we seek out the expert advice. That matters to us. No, we're good. Promise. Yeah, I promise. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, and then there's the non-crisis-oriented culture. 
And the Australian culture is very non-crisis. The term no worries comes from Australia. It originates from there. Um, the term she'll be right, mate, they always say that. Oh, she'll be right, mate. And that's just not talking about your personal life if something's wrong. They're talking about global issues. Oh, it'll all be okay in the morning. So you're like, seriously? No, it's not going to be. <laughs> they downplay the possibility of a crisis. They avoid taking action and delay decisions and really distrust the expert advice. So that's an example of non-crisis. Task-oriented culture. Task-oriented cultures typically tend to be the time-oriented cultures also. So task-oriented is certainly America. We focus on the tasks and the principles. We find satisfaction in the achievement of goals. We love checklists, I think. Again, some of this is personality-driven, so maybe some people aren't like this, but as a whole. Um, and we'll accept loneliness and social deprivation for the sake of a personal achievement. Basically, you know, we'll stay at work until the wee hours of the morning to accomplish something at the sake of, you know, a family's suffering. Um, our friendships may be suffering because we're just very task-oriented. Um, the goal is the object. And then you have the person-oriented culture. Okay, person-oriented, again, is more of the event-oriented culture. They tend to be very similar. Um, they focus on the persons and relationships. Satisfaction is in interaction with people. You've had a really good day if you had a three-hour conversation with someone, regardless of whether or not you accomplished anything on your list of things to do. So, um, and you would deplore, you deplore loneliness and sacrifice your personal achievements for the sake of interaction with others. So the Muslim culture, again, is really, really good at that, actually. Um, they will have you over and welcome you into their home, and you will be there all day, and you will eat, and you will talk. And that's a good day. So that's person-oriented. And uh, Latin American cultures are very similar to that, too. I actually heard that Brazil closes for lunchtime for about two hours. And they all go out to lunch together, and they eat together, and then they go back. And maybe they work later hours, but it's for the sake of the social interaction with each other. So, Then you've got status-focused cultures. This is where prestige is ascribed. The Indian caste system is a perfect example of this. Um, your identity is determined by your formal credentials and your uh, place of rank in the birth cycle, your respect is permanently fixed. You have a high social standing. Um, you play your role in society. You know what it is, and you play that role. And you associate only with those of their same social status. Um, in America, we have groups of people like that, um, the Rockefellers, the Kennedys, prestigious ascribed. Now, that took place over a period of time. But if you were a, you know, this generation right now, Hilton, for example, you know, Paris Hilton, she's got her prestige is ascribed to her by nature of her name. So um, then you've got the achievement-focused culture. <laughs> America is, is definitely achievement-focused. And again, right, wrong, or just different, but I love that about us, actually. Fill in the blanks to these things. We can go from rags to exactly the American dream. dream. Yeah. Pull yourself up by your... Exactly. Identity is determined by your own achievements. Um, your respect comes from your accomplishments and your failures. And attention is focused on your personal performance. Um, you make sacrifices in order to accomplish even greater deeds. And you associate with those of equal accomplishments regardless of where you came from to start with. So, yeah. Again, right, wrong, or just different. Um, then finally, you guys, we have concealment of vulnerability. 
versus willingness to expose vulnerability. Basically, vulnerability views out, viewed as a weakness and then vulnerability viewed as a strength. Um, who of you have heard of the saving face term? Yeah, yeah. What, is, what does that mean? Exactly. You maintain a good image. You want to avoid looking bad at all costs. Many Asian cultures are saving face cultures. Vulnerability is a weakness. So you protect your self-image at all costs. Um, you were, you're very reluctant to go beyond your own recognized limits and enter into the unknown. And you'll, you'll kind of withdraw from activities that might expose your shortcomings and weaknesses. Um, not open to criticism at all or alternative views, and you're very vague regarding your personal life. I've lived with some Asian roommates in the past, and I knew very little about them. Just it's not something you do is talk about your personal life. Um, but vulnerability as a strength, on the other hand, America's better at this than others, and that's evidenced in the shows that we have, Oprah, um, Dr. Phil. People will go on national television, and they will share all about their personal lives. Um, many of our heroes here in our culture tend to be people who have overcome great struggles and their weaknesses have been exposed during those struggles. But we look upon that favorably and we learn from that. So there's relative unconcern for error and failure in this culture. Um, your emphasis on the completion of event. We all say, hey, A for effort, you finished. Doesn't matter you know, about the weaknesses or shortcomings that were exposed in the process. Um, you're willing to push beyond your own limits and enter the unknown. You admit your weaknesses and shortcomings, open to any sort of con constructive criticism, and then you talk freely about your personal life. So um, those are examples of the differing values that we face, whether it's in a cross-cultural relationship that we might have or whether or not we go overseas and enter a different culture. So do any of you have your own stories that came to mind as we were talking about these things? Anything you want to share or add? Nothing? Yeah? Yeah, please share. Oh, okay. I thought you raised your hand. You just turned the page. Okay. <laughs> it's just fun to experience with cultures because you, 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 know, you go in expecting probably just, oh, I'm not going to like it. I really like America. You know? Yeah. And then you go, to me, and I went to Costa Rica and lived with different families. And just, we became family, and I communicated with them for two years after. Yeah. Just, wow, they spend time together every night, three, four hours a night, just mm -hmm. hanging out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's the awesome part, you guys, is that we go into other cultures and we're able to take that back and apply it to our own lives here. So we don't have to be constrained to the value that has always been placed upon us because of where we grew up. You can take the good from another culture and bring it back and apply it to your into your own lives. So yeah. It is exciting, yeah. So, and, and something that I'll talk about a little bit later on is that when we are open to new people and new experiences, we become more able citizens in the kingdom of God and more able servants in God's kingdom and in this world because we have a greater understanding of others and are able to minister to them in that place. So, all right, so we've gone from basic values. So now we have understanding of the layers of culture, and we moved into some of the values that undergird the layers of culture. What I want to talk about now, I have on your next page stages of adjustment. Does anyone have the time really quick? Okay. 
Um, I'm just going to fly through the stages of adjustment, actually. I'm just going to touch upon some highlights for those things. This is really geared towards someone who is going to spend an extensive amount of time overseas. Um, but, you know, if you're going on a short-term mission trip, this still this will probably impact you. Again, depending on your personality, you might not go through any sort of hostility stage, but if you are not one who is very adaptable and good with change, you might enter into the hostility phase on like the third day of the trip. And, and it's just important for you to be aware that that could happen. And that's okay. I just want to say that ahead of time. That's okay. But the honeymoon stage, basically to illustrate that, you don't mind walking a mile to go draw water out of a well and carry it back in a bucket on your head. In fact, not only do you not mind it, it is the best thing that has ever happened to you. You cannot wait to do it again tomorrow. That is the honeymoon stage. Basically, all of the optimism and fascination about being in a different culture are right there on the surface, and you are willing to do anything out of your comfort zone because it's new and it's great. But that will dissipate over time, <laughs> and you'll enter into the hostility phase, and this is when you kind of begin to experience the confusion and the frustration and all the internal tensions um, and, and the effects of just not understanding the people um, that you're living among. So, and in here you start to compare this new culture that you're in with your home culture. And that's called ethnocentricism. I put that down here on the page as a definition. But basically it's where like everything in the new culture sucks. It's all horrible. You should do it our way. This culture, my culture, my home culture, let me show you how it's done. This is so much better. That happens during the hostility phase. And even in that phase, you're like, why don't you have a Starbucks on every corner? Like, I really just want an In-N-Out burger right now, and you're a horrible country for not providing that for anyone. So, though you can find a McDonald's in pretty much any country, so I will tell you that. But um, that's the hostility phase, and and actually during that phase, like your reactions to people and different things can be really uncharacteristic. You might lash out at minor conflicts, become really angry. You might withdraw to a place of seclusion just because you need to retreat into a safe place. Um, and then if someone asks you what's wrong, you're like, nothing, excessive denial that anything is wrong. But clearly your actions are showing something different. So, um, And then you move into the recovery phase. The main point here, um, and I'll talk about this again in a little bit, is just to get through the hostility phase and to the place of recovery, you need to ask good questions. It's imperative to ask good questions of the culture that you're living in and of the people you're living amongst. And one way to ask a good question, and this is just um, important in our own personal relationships, interpersonal relationships, when someone says to you, why do you eat that? Or why do you talk that way? Or why do you think that way? You know, that, that why question, what happens? Our defenses come up, exactly. A better way to maybe phrase the questions to a different culture, cross-cultural relationship or when you're in a new culture is help me understand Help me understand this thought process. Help me understand um, the flavoring of this food. <laughs> uh, just help me understand. That's a much better way to phrase the question. And it's, it's just a posture that says I'm open to a thorough answer because I want to understand you and I want to understand your culture. So um, in the recovery phase, you really begin to understand your own baggage you begin to understand that you're carrying your own values from your own culture over there with you. And you begin to come to a deeper understanding of 
the culture that you're in because you're asking the good questions. And you begin to learn the language, you learn the culture, you adjust um, to the responsibilities that you have as a mission team and what's expected of you, and you learn the coping strategies that are necessary at that point. And it's all a part of moving through the recovery phase. And then you come to complete adjustment. And this is the, the point where you exist the extreme of going native, which means that you completely abandon your home culture and forget about who you are and where you've come from, and you take on everything of that new culture. So you resist that extreme, and you also resist the extreme of being anti-native and completely being, for our sakes, an American in that culture. Um, you're comfortable with your own cultural identity, and you've gained the skills to understand the new culture that you're in. Um, and again, this, this applies to different stages in a cross-cultural relationship. I don't know how many of you are mentoring someone in the Susan B. Anthony neighborhood um, or how many of you have relationships with someone from a completely different culture. But you will go through stages of adjustment in that relationship also because, again, your values collide. So, And then re-entry, and this really happens um, with someone who has been overseas for a long time. But that's when you come back to your home culture. And, and I know that there are some people from the South African team this summer who struggled a little bit with reentry because they were there for a significant amount of time. I think it was over a month. So, um, yeah, yeah, you might struggle with reentry. Um, it's really when you come back to your country of origin and you yourself, you understand yourself again in a new context. Um, you recognize the ways that you've changed while you're away, the things that God has done in you while you are away. And you have to learn to function in this phase normally in light of the changes that have occurred while you're away. So this is the re-entry phase. And it's really important during this phase, and this isn't in my notes, but I was just thinking about this as I re-entered, to have people in your life before you go on your trips or before, you know, as you're in this cross-cultural relationship um, with your mentee or just a friend or a coworker, it's important to have people ask you good questions. When you come back home, people ask you questions. Like for me, when I was in Australia, how was the beach? You know, no, I don't want to talk about that. I really want to talk about the internal things that God did. And so it's important to pull aside maybe one or two people in your life before you go on this trip and say, hey, when I come home, will you ask me about my internal state of being? Will you ask me what did God do in my life? Um, will you ask me what are the changes that I'm going to make now in light of the things that he did while I was away? So I'll encourage you to definitely do that. That will help you in your reentry process. Um, also, during reentry, I think you tend to judge your home culture. You'll go away and you'll fall in love with a new culture and you'll see that um, right, right, I keep saying right, wrong, or just different. Well, you might really think when you come home, oh, America's got it all wrong. <laughs> We're doing this wrong. Our value here is completely out of whack. And so we'll start to judge our home culture in light of the culture we were just in. So be aware of that. Recognize that that could possibly happen. And, um, and I'm going to talk to you next. We'll, we'll get to the next part of this about um, how we can adapt to the differences that we're going to experience, both while we're overseas and then we come back home. So... Um, the next page, you guys, is the U-curve model of adjustment. That's just a timeline for the stages of adjustment. Okay, That's just an illustration of um, kind of what, what you can expect. So zero to about six months, you're going to be in the tourist stage. 
The dissonant stage is really that place where all the tension of being amongst so many differences occurs. You're going to swoop down at about a year to culture shock. That's the hostility stage. Um, and then about 18 months, you're going to go up to the recovery stage. About two years, you're going to be completely adjusted. Again, that's if you're in a culture for a long period of time. So, And if you're in a cross-cultural relationship, too. So keep that in mind. This does not just apply to overseas. So, Okay. The next page. I want to introduce you to what's called the Approaching Differences Diagram right now. And this diagram is going to serve you in preparing for the differences that you'll face in any sort of cross-cultural context. The basic premise of the diagram, and I think I put it there on the top of your notes, is that you have a choice. You have a choice as to how you'll approach the new and the different experiences that you find yourselves in, whether it's in a relationship cross-culturally or whether it's overseas. Um, and I want to start by looking at an important question. It's called the prior question of trust, or the PQT. Um, Marvin Mayers wrote a book called Christianity Confronts Culture. And in it, he proposes that the point of mission is building trust. And there are two types of trust that you're building. One is person to person. So I'm building trust with the native, for lack of a better word. And then the native is building trust with God. So person to person, and then person to God. Go for it. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. No, that's okay. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Yeah. Um, so Mar <laughs> Marvin Mayers developed this question to kind of help missionaries get ready for the differences that they, would, they were going to be facing overseas. And it's a question that we ask ourselves. And it says, is what I am thinking, saying, or doing building trust, or is it undermining trust? And is what I am thinking, saying, or doing potential for building trust, or potential for undermining it? So if we take a look at the Approaching Differences diagram, we see that we have two choices as to how we're going to enter into the cultural differences that we're going to face. Um, we have the option to enter in either positively, you have here, or negatively. And if we take the positive entry approach, then we're keeping ourselves open to um, newness, acceptance, trust, and adaptability. Um, we're taking the posture of what I call a learner. Um, our hearts and our minds are fertile at this point. Um, our other option is to enter into the changes or the differences with fate, uh, fear, suspicion, superiority, and prejudice. And if we take this route, we're taking the posture of what I call a guardian at this point um, because our hearts and our minds are not fertile or open to the changes that we're going to experience. And we're really trying to protect ourselves at that point in our way of thinking and doing things. So however we enter, there are certain inevitables that we're going to face, um, such as the cross-cultural differences, the dissonance, and then the feelings here. Frustration, misunderstanding, confusion, tension, embarrassment. Those are the feelings. Um, and let's first take a look at differences. Differences are discovered over a period of time in a new culture or a new relationship. They can be obvious differences like the things that we talked about up here, food, um, language, maybe personal space, proximity. <laughs> That's definitely a difference that we'll struggle with. Um, and they can also be class differences. We might find ourselves in a context where we're not surrounded by the same standard of living that we're used to. There could be few nice things around us. And then there are differences like um, gender role differences. We might be in a matriarchal society where um, the woman wears the pants uh, across the culture, not just in a particular family. So um, all of these differences are the inevitable parts of cross-cultural ministry and relationships, and they're discovered over a period of time. Our emotional response to the differences is known as dissonance. So you can write next to dissonance, our emotional response. Um, and this can look different in different phases. 
Before we encounter the differences, we may experience anticipation, fear, and anxiety in the exciting kind of way, and probably cluelessness. We have no idea about the differences we're about to encounter. And then upon contact with the differences, we often emotionally respond with surprise, maybe fascination, and I can guarantee you irritation when we encounter those differences. Um, so during these differences and as we walk through them, we will experience the feelings that are written down here of frustration, misunderstanding, confusion, tension, embarrassment. Embarrassment will come from breaking a cultural norm or a cultural rule, and you'll have no idea about that rule, <laughs> and you'll just break it, and they will point that out, and you'll be humiliated. So that can happen. It doesn't necessarily have to happen, but it can happen. It's happened to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> So the differences, the dissonance, and the feelings are the inevitable parts of, of cross-cultural ministry. They're the facts of cross-cultural ministry and relationships. So anticipate that you're, you're, you're going to go through them. And the important thing to keep in mind as you're going through them is the prior question of trust. Be asking yourself, is what I'm thinking, saying, or doing? Building up trust as I experience these differences or undermining it. And work hard at maintaining the positive entry approach. I do want to kind of make a note right here that um, in life, it's nearly not as as neat as this diagram is, <laughs> um, we're going to fall into a mixture of both positive and negative entry approaches. And that's OK. Um, my professor in college, one of the best things he's ever said to me that I've carried over into life in general is that sometimes the mature place to stand is in the tension between two things. So you'll live in the tension of positive and negative. And that's OK. That's where you're going to grow. That's the mature place to be. So um, let's take a look at our personal coping skills or our response to these inevitable things. Um, if we choose to enter into these things, the inevitables with a positive posture, then we're going to come out on the other side as an observer, um, a good inquirer. Like I said, we're going to be able to ask the right questions and understand the new people in the new culture. And we're going to ask them in the right way, which is not why, but help me understand. Exactly. And we're going to be good listeners. We're going to absorb their answers to us. Um, we'll be able to participate and interact with new people and new ways of doing things if we take that positive approach. And we're more willing at this point to give up the personal rights that we cling to uh, because we'll see that there's purpose in adapting. So, but if we've chosen to enter in more negatively, if we've chosen to guard ourselves, um, we're going to come out on the other side as, as critical. Um, we might tend to isolate ourselves um, from the new experiences and the new people. And inwardly, we might become depressed and self-absorbed. Um, what happens is on the outside, we'll leave and we'll create a safe group of people. And that can look like, and this is just something to be aware of, what that looks like is maybe finding people who are responding the way that you are. And you kind of leave and you'll huddle together and create that safe group. And at that point, you kind of talk together and add fuel to the fire, and you begin to um, rationalize your behavior and your thought process as just. And that stems oftentimes from the ethnocentrism, the baggage, the, the cultural values that you're carrying that you're not letting go of. Um, and at this point, everything we do really precludes the effort to understand the new uh, people and, and the different people and culture. So... Um, we're, we're ending this now, you guys. The end result, if we've worked hard at maintaining the positive entry approach, is that we build rapport and empathy with the culture and its people. Um, we have a more expanded view. I said this earlier when Andrew was saying it's just awesome to be in another culture because we'll have a more expanded view of the world and God's kingdom, and we'll become more able citizens and servants in that kingdom. And our end result, and you can write this down next to positive um, entry, our end result is redemptive. Um, 
The end result, if we've really struggled mostly with the negative posture, is that we alienate and withdraw from the people and its culture. And our result, not only with the people and culture, but also with our team members or with our cross-cultural relationship, is um, a broken relationship. And the end is, is, is destructive because we'll, we won't have served ourselves um, or other people in the process. So I hope that in some way this has been helpful to you as you think about going overseas, um, as you think about the cross-cultural relationships that you have here in the Central Valley, um, whether it's with a coworker or a friend or a mentee in the neighborhood. Um, I, I don't profess to know everything, but this is a little of what I do know, and I know the hard way. I failed. I didn't take any of these classes. I went overseas for three years, and then I came home and I studied this stuff. And in hindsight, I was like, I really wish I would have known this beforehand. I hope that you take this with you as you go and enter into your relationships and your mission trips, um, and you don't look back and regret at the new experiences and the new relationships that God will privilege you with. Um, be a support to each other, encourage each other, remind each other of these things. And um, if you have any questions, you guys can email me and I'll try and answer them. I would love to talk with you too when you come back, um, for those of you who are going to Guatemala or Thailand, and, and help you with reentry if, if that's a struggle for you. So um, thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's all.